1: It's not hard to find a pay lake on Facebook with a video stocking ten thousand pounds of trophy fish in their lake, in a one, two acre lake. Uh and people get are getting fired up about that. Well then you see the depletion in the Ohio River and then that fires people up even more.
2: Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. This is the NWF Outdoors Podcast. And this is your host, Aaron Kindle. Today, we have a very interesting subject, something I think is entirely egregious and in violation of a bunch of different wildlife tenants, if you ask me. Uh, it's something that's clearly diminishing the value of a resource in the Midwest. And what we're talking about here is something called pay lakes. Now, pay lakes is, are maybe known to some, maybe not known to others, uh, but we're gonna talk about them today and most specifically pay lakes that stock wild fish, that take fish from their their home water, their native waters, and put them in these pay lakes, which are small ponds. And uh, they also charge folks to catch them and there's no requirement for a fishing license. So some stuff that's really hanging around some spaces that uh, make most outdoorsmen and women pretty nervous. And uh, to, to have this conversation, We have two people who know it in and out, and I'm going to introduce them first, uh, but uh, after that, we're going to let them take off and tell us what this is all about. Uh, So first, I'll introduce Greg Schwipps. He's a teacher at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana, and he's an author of a novel and the book, if you've seen it, Fishing for Dummies, the third edition, and he's also a big angler himself, and uh, he is the has been working on these, these regulations to improve this situation for, for over 10 years, and he's the vice president of the Indiana Catfish Conservation Association. So a lot of good experience there. And then second, we have Aaron Wheatley, and he's an avid catfisherman and a professionally sponsored angler from Kentucky. And he's the founder and creator of the catfishing tournament Monsters of the Ohio, or On the Ohio, sorry, Aaron. And he's appeared in numerous media sources regarding catfishing and this pay lakes issue, and has also been working on it for several issue years. Sorry. So, uh, first off, I'll just ask you how you're doing. How's
3: it going today for you, Greg? Hey, Greg. Good to be here, Aaron. Thanks for your interest. Thanks for your effort.
2: You're welcome. And what about you, Aaron? Uh, we've been dealing with some technical difficulties, but I think we're all in good spirits.
1: Yeah, yeah, like Greg said early, man, we're I man, We're patient, man. It's it's a real honor to have the National Wildlife Federation uh get on board with us. You know, we've been knocking on doors for a long time, man, and uh we know you guys reach a lot of sportsmen and this, this affects a lot of sportsmen I know.
2: Well, great, I, I appreciate the both of you spending some time here. And uh one of the traditions we have on this podcast is before we get going. We ask our guests to tell us what they've been doing outside. And I even share a little bit about what I've been doing outside since this is indeed the NWF Outdoors podcast. So, Aaron, let's start with you. Uh, since we did Greg's bio first, what have you been up to outside lately? You've been spending any time fishing or otherwise?
1: Well, I spend a lot of time outside. I, I do maintenance for a Catholic church. So I mow a lot of grass, I weed eat a lot, and blow. And when I'm not doing that, Chances are you're gonna find me on the river somewhere within two or three hundred miles of Owensboro, Kentucky.
2: Excellent, and uh, that's good. Uh, the, those days on the water and and the days when you get to be outside, no matter what you're doing, are always are always good ones. I sit behind a computer a lot and wish sometimes I could do all any odd thing outside. So, uh, Greg, let's jump over to you. Any fun adventures lately?
3: Well, I'm lucky. Where I live in west central Indiana, I have uh, a few reservoirs close by that really have pretty good populations of fish. I have a couple of boats I can take to those reservoirs. But I also have a small uh, stream that flows through this county called Big Walnut Creek. And uh, this time of year, it's just about as pretty as it can be. And it's a great place to wade for smallmouth. And uh, it's kind of low stress, low stakes fishing that that that's hard to beat, really.
2: Excellent, uh, and I guess I'll I'll add for myself. Uh, it's elk season, big game season here in Colorado where I live, and uh, I've been really trying like heck to get my my son an elk. He's he's sixteen. He's really into elk hunting, any kind of hunting he can do he he would do. And so we've kind of turned off the typical trout fishing we do, and we're we're in the elk woods a lot. And boy, there is a heck of a lot of hunters this year out. Colorado is one of the few states that you can get an over-the-counter bull tag. Anyone can show up if they have about $750 and get an elk tag. So a lot of folks out there this year, it's been a different, interesting kind of year. COVID's made some, some changes in the way we uh, way we see hunting here. But let's jump into your issue. And, and I think, Greg, I'll start with you and just give us what the heck is a pay lake?
3: Uh, what is it? You know what's the situation here overall? We're talking about. Let's let's transition by uh, talking about elk. So a lot of people would probably like to kill a big elk. That would probably be um, a bucket list hunt for a lot of people. The thing is though, that's a hunt that you'd have to earn in a lot of different ways. You'd have to have that license. You'd have to travel somewhere where there are elk. You'd have to earn that animal in a lot of different ways, and it's not a right. For anyone to be able to kill an elk. But what's happening with these pay lakes is that we have commercial fishermen and pay lake operators who are constructing these small ponds, acre, two, three acres, and then they're wild, uh, they're catching wild fish to stock these pay lakes. So if I push this analogy with elk, this is the equivalent of saying everyone has the right to kill a big elk. We're going to go capture wild bull elk, we're going to put them in high fence enclosures, and we're going to let people come shoot them without a license. And the fact is, it's not everybody's right to do that. And and frankly, you can't make this kind of trophy catfishing that easy. But of course, what's happening then is that wild stock is getting depleted as these pay lakes continually stock large fish. The fish die in the ponds And the pay lake operators replace them. So those who are fishing in public water are realizing that the fish are disappearing.
2: Yeah, we'll get into this more, Greg, but especially your analogy there. It really kind of brings this issue home to me, right? For someone who works in wildlife conservation, we often tout what's called the North American model of conservation for those who don't know it. And there's several tenants there, and there's a few different ones that are are, uh, germane to what we're talking about here. One is, you know, you can't uh, monetize wild animals, right? Meaning that you can't, for instance, you can't take a trout here in Colorado and then walk into a restaurant and say, hey, buy these trout uh, out of wild waters, buy these trout and serve them to your patrons because we know the depletion of the of the resource could be pretty heavy if everyone was walking around with the ability to monetize this wild animal. Same goes with venison or elk. You can't harvest one and go sell it. You have to have a a different kind of a license, Uh, you know, uh, and and not for wild anything. You have to have a, 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 essentially a farming operation and that's got problems of its own, similar to what you illuminated there. But let's, let's talk a little bit further. And Aaron, maybe you can jump in here with What's going on in Kentucky? I mean, you know you're a hardcore cat fisherman. you've you've had a had a tournament around this uh, for many years. Let's talk about what you're seeing.
1: Well, you know the the thing about the pay Lakes are what were pay lakes fifteen years ago and what pay lakes are now are are a total different operation. Um, basically, what happened was a lot of these pay lake owners are commercial fishermen. With that being said, these you know uh, fish houses really aren't interested in the bigger fish. The Ohio River is the most polluted river in the United States, so most fish houses aren't interested in the big in the bigger fish. So the the commercial guys figured, well, look, you know we're catching these bigger fish, we're having to throw them back. Let's figure out how we can make money off these fish. So they started digging one, two acre ponds and stocking trophy fish uh, back 10, 12 years ago at an unlimited rate. As many fish as they could pull out of the rivers, uh, they could keep. Um, with me running Monsters on Ohio, which is, has been the largest tournament held on the Ohio River, period, for catfishing, you know, I, I've been involved with guys from West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois, Texas, Alabama, I really get to uh, learn more about what's going on in my river and rivers around me by listening to these guys. And we all have come to the same conclusion. After seeing, you know, it's its not, it's not hard to find a pay lake on Facebook with a video stocking 10,000 pounds of trophy fish in their lake, in a one, two-acre lake. Uh, and people get are getting fired up about that. Well, then you see the depletion in the Ohio River, and then that fires people up even more. Uh, so it's uh, you know the whole. I don't think anyone has a problem with a pay lake that has farm-raised fish in it. I, I don't know anyone that has a problem with that. The problem is taking this natural resource out of its home for personal gain. And you know you go back to what Greg was saying about the elk. Uh, not only can you are you building high fences and letting people shoot elk, but you're letting people continue to shoot that same elk until he dies, and then you're just going to throw him away. That's exactly what they're doing with these large catfish. They're catching them. These lakes are catch and release. A pay lake, catch and release, and they catch these fish till they die, and then they just bury them in the ground a total waste. It makes no sense.
2: Yeah. I think one of the things that, you know, we as conservationists really espouse a lot, right. Is both respect for, for the resource, right. Um, as sportsmen and women, you know, we're out there every day. We have a, we have a reputation in the public, how po- how folks perceive what we're doing is really going to be both, you know, determine the future of, of our opportunities and then second, uh, you know, just plain, is it ethical? It doesn't make sense. Do you take a wild resource and, and put it there for somebody's private gain? And I think the one of the even worse parts about this that you mentioned is they don't have to have a fishing license. So the whole system that's set up through Pittman-Robertson, Dingle-Johnson, the seminal conservation acts of our, of our country's history that help manage these resources is, is circumvented, and we don't we don't pay into that resource via license fees. So that, to me, makes this yet another you know problem that we have here. So l- let's just jump into a little bit more uh, because you know, oh, Greg, you think you're about to jump in first,
3: Aaron. This flies in the in the face of fair chase. Everything we know about fair chase and the ethical pursuit of gain. So. The other thing is, and I want to circle back around to this uh, the, the attaching a value or, or uh, monetizing a natural resource, what happens as these fish die and the pay lakes face increasing demand, and a lot of this is driven by social media, as Aaron Wheatley suggested. So you have YouTube videos of pay lake operators stocking a lot of fish. And as Aaron said, it could be 10,000 pounds, 13 pounds of fish. And, you know, these aren't small fish. They could have four or five fish that are over 80 pounds in that load of 10,000 fish. We have watched many YouTube videos where pay lakers are stocking over 100-pound fish, fish that would honestly be a state record in Indiana or Kentucky, and it's getting rolled down a wet tarp into a pay pond. But what also happens then is as those fish die and they've got to feed that cycle, recreational sport fishermen who are licensed realize that they can sell fish they've caught. And these could be catfish they caught on rod and reel. These could be catfish they've hand fished or caught on a limb line or a bank pole. They can sell those fish to the pay lake for two or three or however many dollars a pound. So there's incentive for them to exploit the resource as recreational anglers. Now, this is 100% illegal, of course, to do that. But many other things are illegal, too, and we know they're happening. Now,
1: in in the state of Kentucky, that is not true, Greg. Um, You have to have a commercial license to sell a fish in the state of Kentucky.
3: Yeah, no, that's true in Indiana. You cannot sell or even give away a fish in the state of Indiana. Um, Just recently, Indiana conservation officers did a sting operation and they busted one pay leg for buying fish from private citizens. And it's a really poorly kept secret around here. Totally illegal and also still happening.
1: Right. Also still happening. Yes, agreed.
2: Well, let's talk about a couple other things because one of them was method of take. Uh, also, you know, netting multiple different fish. You know, I know in some states you can't just go net a fish, right? You have to catch it by... A more of a fair chase method by fly or bait or, you know, uh, that type of thing, but unpack the whole netting thing for me, because some of the stories I've heard and seen as we began talking about this, there's multiple, you know, 20, 30 pound catfish in one of these nets. Like let's unpack that and, and talk kind of technically, what does that look like? How, how big are these nets? How many can they hold? You know, how do they catch them? Those kinds of things
1: you want to touch on that, Greg, or me?
3: You go ahead, Aaron. You've seen it. Well, you know, there,
1: there, there's several different kind of nets. There There's hoop nets, you know, that they use during the spawn. You know, that's one thing I'll never understand is why are we allowing commercial fishermen to uh, run hoop nets during the spawn? The hoop net sits on bottom. The fish swim in, and they can't get out. Simple as that. Uh, they're, they they use gill nets now in Kentucky. I do believe there is a gill net season. Uh, those those gill nets, you know, they'll be the gill nets kind of set on top of the water. They're really using a lot of gill nets for like the Asian carp and stuff. Now uh, they they're normally in the shallower water or up in the water column. Uh, they 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 go down as far as five six feet, and they can be you know a hundred yards long. Uh, so they just take big swoops of these fish and, you know, that's why some of these states have brought in regulations because like I said, 10 or 12 years ago, no matter what you caught in that net, you could keep, if you caught 130 pounders in that net in that day, you could keep them all. Uh, but they cannot do that anymore. They also, trot lines is another, another big, um, tool that the commercial guys use. Most of the pay lakes are stocked in the spring and that's because they're running hoop nets during the spawn. It's just, it's not fair. It's not fair at all. I don't even fish during the spawn. I take June off. I don't fish at all, but I can go out on the river and see three commercial guys from the state of Ohio in my pool, trying to take the four biggest fish they can out of my pool uh, while they're here, you know, it's the whole netting thing. I'm not completely against commercial fishing because I understand it is needed. We have an Asian carp issue, and I imagine we'll get into that later. Uh, we need commercial guys for the Asian carp. Uh, I don't see where we need commercial guys to fill pay lakes with trophy cats with their nets. I don't see where that's needed at all.
3: Aaron, part of the way uh, the catfish's biology works against it is number one, you've got a fish that that, as Aaron said spawns at a predictable time every year which makes them vulnerable the other thing is you've got a fish that studies have shown can travel way up and down the river well the problem then is that a fish that could be protected somewhere might then migrate during a certain season to another place where it's not protected so essentially as these fish travel up and down these rivers between dams they're basically dodging net after net um and the odds of you finding, as a recreational fisherman, the odds of you finding one of those big fish that has somehow survived the various methods you can catch it, it it's just the odds are going uh, down every day.
2: Yeah, I want to talk about this for from a regular, you know, angler's point of view. And I'll start with you, Greg, because, you know, it's, it's, it's that part, just an average Joe or Jane trying to go out and grab grab some catfish. But also after that, Aaron, let's jump to you and talk about your tournament and what you're seeing there. So Greg, start with a, start, start us with, you know, when you go out fishing now or, or what did it look like over the last 10, 15 years leading up to this moment?
3: Yeah. Excellent. Well, I'll admit, I'm not a good, as good a fisherman as Aaron Wheatley. And um, so I need at least a decent number of fish in the river for me to have some luck. And I'm only partly joking. But in the you know, early 2000s, around two, up to 2008, 2010, um, I could go to the Ohio River. And I'm now three hours away from the Ohio River. So this is an investment in every sense of the word. I'm going to drive three hours. I'm going to put gas in the truck. I'm going to put gas in the boat. It is a full commitment. But, you know, with the right bait and the right method, you know, I've caught fish over 50 pounds, blue catfish over 50 pounds in the Ohio River. And I've had days where, you know, I could catch, you know, maybe six, 10 fish over 25 pounds. So the fish were there. uh, There were a lot of people fishing for them. There were a lot of people pumping money into that local economy for a shot at these fish. And over, I'm not talking about over my lifetime, I'm talking about over the last 10 years, suddenly all the same methods, the same baits, the same techniques, you start to get the sense that it's like you're fishing in a, in a, I mean, imagine a pond that's had acid rain or something in it. All of a sudden, you just think, man, I've done this a million times. I know I've got the right bait. I know I'm in the right place. I'm using the right technique. And there are just simply no fish left. Uh, The last time I went to the Ohio River, I fished seven or eight hours and caught zero fish using really good bait. So, um, you know, my boys are eight and 10 years old. I have two boys. Uh, I'm like everybody else, you know, I want to pass on the the kind of angling that I've grown passionate about. And the fact is, I could not justify taking them to the Ohio River. They're going to wonder what we're doing. The, The the rods simply won't move. So the fish are gone. It's that simple.
2: And Aaron, let's jump over to you. You, you had this tournament, you know, obviously catfish anglers coming from all different places of the country. What's happened with your catfish tournament?
1: You know, when we started our catfishing tournament, this would, this is the 12th year for it. We started with a whim and a prayer. Um, my town was doing $300 million worth of work to its riverfront. And I thought, well, it's the only way I'm ever going to get anything done with the catfishing rigs is start a tournament and get my city involved. And that's what I did. We started with 24 boats and within five years, we was over a hundred within six years, we was over 150 and we've been over 150 boats for six years. I think, uh, until this year. Now I I stepped aside. Uh, I put a lot of time and effort into this cat fishing from directing monsters on the Ohio to fighting regulations to just enjoying fishing with my friends. And I've seen the decline. Uh, I've seen the guys that were from Texas and the guys that were from Kansas and the guys that were from Pennsylvania quit coming to my tournament. Uh, and, and I know why, because I talked to them and it, it's the fishing. Uh, I have the best boat ramp on the Ohio river in the state of Kentucky. There's no doubt about it. I have one of the best in the state of Kentucky when it comes to Owensboro and supporting uh, tourism. They've been behind me the whole time and still, we, can, we continue to lose boats because of the fishing. Uh, everybody's seen, you know, Wheatley's fighting for regs. Nothing's happening. Uh, the fishing's getting terrible. We're not going to support the state of Kentucky at all anymore. We're not going to spend our tourism dollars in Owensboro, Kentucky anymore, even though we love the place. I mean, all I ever heard about Monsters on the Ohio was the love for the tournament. But the fishing sucked. And the Department of Fish and Wildlife was definitely not willing to step on the commercial toes to get this thing right. And so I ended up giving my tournament up. Uh, I ended up giving my sponsors up. And I just fish now, man, with my friends. And uh, it really, it's really disheartening. It really is. uh, Because, you know, I work all week long. I told Greg earlier, we talked, I work my butt off all week long to enjoy the weekend fishing. And I can't enjoy myself if I'm not catching fish, um, and it's it's got tough around here. It's got tough on the Ohio river, that's for sure. And the thing about it is, I've fished everywhere: the Mississippi River, the Missouri River, the Tennessee River, the Cumberland River, uh, J- James River, just everywhere. And everywhere I go, I can catch fish, except for three miles from my house, which is the simplest, easiest thing for me to get to. And it's really disheartening when you got to travel 100 miles instead of three miles to go and catch some fish. And it has definitely hurt monsters on the Ohio because everybody is going to these states now, like Alabama and Tennessee, that have had regs installed for a while and uh, have a no transportation of fish in their states. What's happening is the sportsmen are supporting the states that are supporting them. And there's nothing wrong with that. These other states need to get on board with the sportsmen, period.
3: Aaron's right. And I want to say, too, it's easy to hear about this issue and think, okay, it only affects big rivers. But the truth is, through my work with Indiana Catfish Conservation Association, I have friends and and colleagues who are running tournament series on inland rivers in Indiana. These are small rivers that um, during the summer, it's hard to get a boat on them that's not a that's not a jet drive because they're so shallow but even those lakes have been out or sorry those those small rivers have been fished and overfished in different ways both by recreational anglers who are who are given these really generous bag limits they're given a multitude of ways to take these fish and so my buddy who runs a a, a, an Indianapolis inland based tournament series Finally, had to give it up because they were having these overnight tournaments where maybe half the boats wouldn't weigh any fish and the boats that did catch fish might catch two or three and they were undersized. So almost anywhere these catfish swim, if you're talking about flatheads and blue catfish, there's a good chance that they're being exploited and the fish don't get that big overnight. It takes years. And if we're taking every large fish we catch um, they just simply don't have a chance to reproduce, and the populations getting hurt. But especially for any adult fish.
2: Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more, Aaron. You know, let's let's use some numbers from your tournament, right? What what were right. people catching before? What what did it look like, and then what is it like now, or what what was it like most recently?
1: Well, uh, Monsters on the Ohio was just held uh, in October. Uh, 77 pounds won it, and that's in five fish. And in the state of Kentucky, you're allowed two fish over 35 – well, one fish per species over 35 inches a day. So that means you can keep one blue cat and one flathead per license holder. But most tournaments just go by a two-man rule, so you can only – catch what two guys could catch. Uh so you could you could you could weigh in five overs at monsters if you had two blues over, two flatheads over, and a channel cat over 28 inches. I've never seen that in a tournament on the Ohio River. I've never seen anyone have five overs that way. Uh, so most boats weigh in a couple over blues and then the rest of the fish have to be under 35 inches. So 77 pounds won it this year. That was the lowest weight ever at Monsters on the Ohio. Uh, Normally, you know, and this, you know, you think, okay, these guys had 120 pounds, that's a good day. But if you got 180 boats and there's only three boats in the whole tournament that go over 100 pounds, that's really not that good of a day because you got to understand I have three pools open for monsters on the Ohio, you could fish from Louisville, Kentucky, to Uniontown, Kentucky, on the Ohio River. You're talking, you're talking over 200 miles of water that is open during the tournament. Uh, so it ain't like they're all just stuck in one pool to fish. These guys are spread out everywhere, and the numbers just keep dropping. And, and 77 pounds, I mean, that that's pitiful. That is pitiful. There was only, you know, the number of boats have dropped, like I told you. Some of that has to do with COVID. Some of it has to do with me not being the director. And a lot of it has to do with the the numbers of fish not being there. There were 88 boats, just to give you an idea, there were four fish caught over 35 inches in that whole tournament. 88 boats, six rods per boat, four fish over 35 inches caught in that tournament. That's bad.
2: That's bad. And compare that to, compare that to you know when you started it.
1: Well, you know my numbers when I started were we we were already having the issue. The issue was already there. We've been fighting longer than my tournament has been going. You know, uh, we 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 would have a couple boats a hundred pounds or more. You know, to finish in the top ten you would have to be in the 70, 80-pound range. Now to be in the top 10, you only got to be in the 40-pound range. But you take you take this down to Alabama or Tennessee where, you know, a five-fish weigh-in in Decatur, Alabama on Lake Wheeler, you can see over 200 pounds. It happens a lot. And they, they have different regs. It's one over 34 per license holder in Alabama, so that means you can only have one fish over 34 inches a day. So that means they have two overs and three unders. And a lot of times you're going to see 150 to 200 pounds on the Tennessee River, which runs through Kentucky, which also runs into Alabama. Uh, But Alabama's had their regs installed longer and Alabama does not allow transportation of live fish. And that's why Decatur, Alabama in 2019, the Montgomery County Tourism put out a video They made $251 million in tourism in that one county alone. Now, I'm not going to say that was all catfish dollars. But I will say, when I started Monsters on the Ohio, there were zero in 2009. There were zero tournaments in Decatur, Alabama. In 2019, there were 11. And they, like I said, they had $251 million worth of tourism. In that county, let's just say catfishing was ten percent of that. That's twenty-five million dollars brought into one county because they protect their fish and they don't allow the transportation of live fish across state lines. Sportsmen are given back. Is that's a prime example? There were zero tournaments in Decatur, Alabama, when I started monsters on the Ohio. There's thirty tournaments a year on Lake Wheeler now. They're they're raking in the tourism dollars, no doubt about
3: it. Aaron, let me jump in to say right
1: go where they can catch big fish.
3: They want to catch big fish. I know, and I'm not a tournament fisherman, but I know that to build excitement for a weigh in which is a public event, you know, the people from the town are showing up to see what fish are being brought back. You need those big fish to generate excitement. That's part of it. The other thing that I wanted to say that Era. Absolutely, I would
1: have, you know, I would have a thousand people uh, in the crowd at Monsters. You know, a thousand people in the crowd, and you could go back and look at videos, look on Facebook, look under Monsters on the Ohio and listen to that crowd when that fifty-plus-pound fish comes out of that live well. There's nothing like it. You know, it's like hitting that home run. It's like scoring that touchdown, hitting that basket. It's that winning moment. It's that. Uh, it's that adrenaline man and we're missing out on that nowadays definitely in our area in the state of kentucky and indiana uh for sure
3: no nobody wants to go to a weigh-in and watch a bunch of 15 or 20 pound fish come out of a a live well now let's say this if if a pay lake operator were on this podcast right now he would say well here's the problem with tournaments even though tournaments uh, anglers keep their fish alive, and most of them have big enough live wells, you know, equipped to do this, they would say some of those fish inevitably die after a tournament. And I think that's probably true. The difference, of course, is, number one, they're not all dying. 100% of the fish hauled to a pay lake are gone forever. And you're not dealing with anywhere near the amount of fish that a pay lake or a commercial fisherman would take. So, you know, if you have 100 boats in a, in a tournament, let's say, which would be a really big tournament, and let's say they could bring five fish back to the weigh-in. Well, okay, you can do the math. There, there are a lot more uh, fish in those commercial fishermen trailers that are going back to these pay lakes. Um, so there's no comparison as far as that goes. And the other thing I wanted to add that Aaron's probably too modest to say is that when he says these numbers are going down for monsters on the Ohio These are some of the very best fishermen in the Midwest, in this country, using the best boats, the best technology, the best methods they have, and they still can't find these fish.
2: And now let's pause for a message from our partner podcast.
1: Hey everyone, this is Marcia Brownlee from Artemis Sportswomen. We know you love awesome stories about hunting, fishing, and conservation, so head on over to the Artemis podcast. You'll meet adventurous, accomplished women who are redefining conservation through their lives in the field and on the water. Filled with humor, audacity, empathy, and intelligence, Artemis brings you new voices and introduces you to women from all walks of the sporting community. Find Artemis wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Let's talk about the scope a little bit. I mean, you know, how many states is this a problem? what are the catch limits for, you know, I know in some States there, there, you can only catch so many in other States you can catch all you want. You know, some States call them, you know, trash fish or non game or whatnot. Unpack that issue a little bit for us. Like how big is this problem? You know, what are we talking about overall?
1: Uh, one of the biggest problem is there's not a uniform regulation out there for everybody. Um, most of the states are different, you know, uh, even on the Ohio river in the state of Kentucky, the regular split, uh, depending on what end of the river you're on. I mean, it would just be, and I've heard, uh, you know, guys from fish and wildlife that are out in the field say, you know, what we need is a uniform regulation. So we know what we can enforce and what we can't enforce. enforcement is a major problem. These guys don't know who's, you know, there's we could sit here and talk about this forever, Aaron. You really have to understand, you know, guys on a trophy permit, commercial fishermen, guys not on a trophy permit. The way that they've split the Ohio River into half of it's a trophy fishery, the other half is not. Um, man, I mean, it is just it is you know, in Tennessee and Alabama, you know, it's they're both a one over thirty-four. In Alabama, you can't transport live fish across state lines. In Tennessee, you can't transport a live fish over 34 inches, period. You know, uh, so they're kind of the same, but they're different. You know, we have pushed for a no transport in Indiana and Kentucky from the very beginning. We have pushed for a no transportation of live fish across state lines in two different meetings it was voted to go through and the lawyers come out at the last minute at fish and wildlife and said it was against interstate commerce i'm not that smart i'm not real sure what interstate commerce is but my understanding is the only way to stop transportation of live trophy catfish out of the state of kentucky is to come in agreement with illinois indiana ohio and west virginia We all have to do it in order for for that to happen. Yet, in the state of Alabama, there's no transportation of live fish across state lines. In the state of Tennessee, there's no transportation of trophy fish inside the state of Tennessee. Period. So, in Georgia, the flathead is you know is an invasive species. In Maryland, in Virginia. The blue cats are an invasive species to the crab. You know, I mean, it's crazy the swings that you see in this catfishing thing. I mean, it's just absolutely nuts.
3: Yeah, he, he's right. And, and for example, you know, Minnesota does not allow jug fishing for catfish, they don't allow trot lining, they don't allow hand fishing. There's no commercial fishing in the Minnesota River, and you can take two flatheads but only one over 24 inches and and missouri in some ways is progressive they have a they, they treat all catfish as game fish and so they get better regulations as a result but as Aaron said it varies state by state which is complicated um by the fact that we often have rivers between our states those are the borders sometimes there are questions of who controls or regulates that river and the fish are moving up and down the river but the other thing I think that's becoming more of a problem is that even the states that have passed regulations often zoom in on the 34 or 35 inch mark. So in Indiana, for example, you can take one fish per day. Now that's per day, of course, over 35 inches, but you're, you're free to take an unlimited number underneath that measurement. The problem is, as Aaron said, when he was talking about monsters on the Ohio earlier, it seems that there simply aren't that many fish left that are in that protected slot or over 35 inches. So even the laws that some of these states have are meant to protect big fish, but either the fish that are already that size have been taken or they're being over harvested when they're under 34 inches and they simply can't reach that protected slot.
2: So two things I want to get to here. One is, you know, First, in a lot of states, I know here in Colorado, you can't transport a live fish period you know if i they call it bucket biology, you know they don't want guys putting a couple of fish in a in a bucket and taking them over to a different creek that doesn't have fish and trying to manage and bringing things like whirling disease or other you know other issues that may be in that in that uh in that fishery over to some other you know maybe pristine fishery. The other thing is uh, that we need to talk about a little is invasive species, Uh, you know, with transporting, you know, whether it be aquatic organisms that are tiny that you can't see, whether it be something like invasive carp that we have a huge problem with there. Greg, can you unpack that a little as far as, you know, what kind of problems we've seen there? And I also want just real quick. Give us a sense of the volume here, because I think that's one thing we maybe haven't touched on enough. And when I heard some of the the gaudy numbers that you were talking about, the poundage of, of catfish that were being taken out of a river in a certain day and, and put in a pay lake, I think it really kind of illuminates a bit more of the
3: problem. You've got to see it to believe it. And so what I'm going to say to everyone listening to this podcast right now is that you can, uh, and I'm not connected to this website, but there's a website called exposingpaylakes.com. You could look this up on Google. Uh, you can find this on YouTube. But what's interesting about this business is Pay Lakes want to advertise their ponds. And to best advertise them, they want to prove that they have a lot of big fish going into that particular pay pond. So what they'll do is make a video of them releasing these fish into these ponds, and then they'll put up weights. So it is not unusual to see a pay lake make a post on social media and say, we just stocked over 10,000 pounds of fish. And when you see those fish spread out on the tarp, you know, they're not exaggerating. Um, And again, you're seeing multiple fish over 60 pounds. So the amount of fish that's being taken uh, from public water to stock these pay lakes. And again, that's you might have 10,000 pounds of fish going into one pay lake one time. That pay lake's going to stock multiple times. You've also got a lot of pay lakes out there. You could say you've got more pay lakes every day because the demand is there. So the scope of the problem is kind of hard to fathom. It's so big. But again, you can find those YouTube clips. And you can see how it feels to see that kind of biomass roll down into that little one acre pond. The other thing I want to say though, and again, sport fishermen, recreational anglers have different rules. And Aaron, Indiana is the same way. We can't move bait from one lake to another. We can't, you know, uh, sell or, or give away fish. We can't stock a lake uh, public water on our own. In fact, we're even told You've got to drain your uh, builds from your boat. You've got to scrub, you know, you've got to make sure you're not moving any tiny, as you said, microorganism from one body of water to another. On the other hand, as soon as you have a commercial fishing license, apparently you are allowed to haul thousands of gallons of river water and a whole ton of biomass down the interstate. You might drive hundreds of miles. And we have seen photos of Asian carp that have been caught in pay lakes. So we know that Asian carp are moving from public waters to private ponds. This is exactly what we've been told over and over again. We don't want to allow it to happen, especially with Asian carp, but commercial fishermen apparently don't have to worry about that.
2: Yeah. And when we're dealing with the kind of volume like that, that seems to be more of the Place where you'd find the vector for for movement of those invasive species uh, than than any other way, really. I mean, that's if you're talking ten thousand pounds of fish, and you've got a fish that's fifty pound. I mean, it takes a lot of fifty pound fish to get up to ten thousand pounds. This is this is a severe depletion of biomass, as you said, out of the river. I mean, I think there's so many issues with this that are not they're not you know they're not fair chase. It, it violates the model of how we do conservation. It's not fair to the to the standard angler who's buying his license or her license and and trying to get out there and find some fish. That's a public resource. I think it's also just entirely disrespectful to the fish itself, right? These these critters that that you know you get. How how long does it take a fifty pound catfish to grow to that size? I mean, these are old fish. Yeah, these are old fish.
3: Yeah. 20 years and so 20 years which means of course that you also need 20 years to replace that fish you need 20 years when that fish is not being harvested to replace that fish
2: and i'm sure there's problems with breeding you know these are this is the breeding stock these are the ones that are most likely to produce prolific you know prolifically um so i think you know uh, to me the problem's obvious and and what i think we ought to jump to now is What the heck are we going to do about it? Because we can't, this isn't something that is not something that as responsible wildlife advocates and that the managers and others, I think can, can last much longer or, you know, not just regular Joe's fishing, but the pay lakes are going to go away at some point too. I mean, you can see an end to all of this at the rate that we're going, it's not sustainable. It's problematic for a lot of reasons. Let's talk about what we do. And I'll start with you, Greg, because I know you've been working with the Catfish Association there on a couple of different things in Indiana. Let's tell folks what you're working on and and what you want to see.
3: Yeah, that's great. I want to add one more thing before I forget it. The other thing, um, the other way Asian carp are connected to the catfish issue um, is that we know catfish are preying on these Asian carp. In fact, if an Asian carp jumps into your boat, a silver big head carp jumps into your boat and you cut it up, you've got a really good bait on your hands. And there's a study, I think, from the University of Missouri that shows uh, blue cats are especially are feeding heavily on Asian carp. So we know we have an Asian carp issue in a lot of these rivers, but for every catfish that you remove, you're taking away just about the only natural predator that that river has to control the spread of Asian carp. So not only are we, in my mind, risking the further spread of this invasive, we're, we're encouraging really to thrive in these rivers because once it gets over X number of inches, there's really nothing else in the river that can eat it. And, there are and I many- should note, Go ahead.
2: Sorry, Greg, I should note that uh, the National Wildlife Federation has a big campaign where we're working on removing and and you know mitigating the issues with Asian carp across the Midwest. I'll put some I'll put some links in the show notes. That's a that's a gigantic problem in and of itself. And if you're taking away a good natural predator and you're doing some of these other things, it's it's a, it's compounding one problem on top of the next. That's right. Here,
1: here in Kentucky, we we proclaimed a war on carp. Uh, our our ex-head of fisheries Ron Brooks has led the war on carp. Who goes to war without their soldiers? (laughs) Good point.
2: Yeah, these catfish are some good
3: soldiers. Well, Aaron, you ask about solutions. Um, Aaron Wheatley mentioned earlier that Tennessee has banned the travel of fish, not across state lines, but from county to county. And it seems to me that if we're gonna reduce the traffic of wildlife, if we're gonna reduce the spread of Asian carp, the first thing we have to do is say, okay, a natural resource that's in a particular state, unless it migrates out on its own, has a right to stay within that state. And as they say, what belongs to everyone belongs to no one, but it ought to be that the licensed anglers of that state have a right to pursue that natural resource. So I said earlier, it wouldn't be right for somebody to go to Colorado and trap an elk and bring it back here to Indiana for me to shoot. Um, I think we've got to do more to reduce the way these fish are getting moved up and down our highways in fish hauling trailers. So I think that's part of it. The other thing we'd like to see uh, done, if catfish were declared game fish in every state, they would automatically get some benefits that they don't now have. And the truth is, if any state out there where catfish are prevalent has some sort of angler survey in terms of popularity, catfish are almost always in the top three, top five. So this is a fish that we know recreational anglers like to pursue. Why are some states not identifying them as game fish? So I think that's part of it. And Lastly, maybe lastly, um, we've got to just reduce the number of fish that any angler can take. Um, and, and that means for sport fishermen, I, I think, number one, we should reduce the, the methods that you can use to take a fish. But even if we continue to allow trot lines and bank poles, et cetera, we've got to then reduce the bag limits so that anglers are not able to take a ton of these fish using all these methods that are really pretty effective. I mean, if I build or if I set a bank line or a limb line with a live bluegill on it, and I let that thing fish for the next 24 hours, I'm probably going to catch a catfish. But again, some of these methods are too effective. We've got to reduce bag limits and we've got to curtail commercial fishing. It's that simple.
2: Aaron, dive in here. Tell us what what you're seeing in Kentucky.
1: Well, you know, uh, i we're definitely, we, like I said, we have been pushing for no transportation from the very beginning uh, for for 10 years now, and we still haven't got it. You ask yourself why, and, you, you know, like I'm not a real political guy, you know, I'm not into all that stuff, and I'm a catfisherman, fisherman. And, and I just don't understand why we cannot, because what, what Kentucky does in the state of Ohio which is the biggest pay lake state in the nation. Okay. They do not allow commercial fishing. Okay. But Kentucky will sell Ohio residents, a non-residential commercial license. That to me makes no sense. Why are you selling a commercial license to a state that will not sell you a commercial license because they've outlawed it. Ohio's like, well, You can't take our fish, but you can go anywhere in the country and bring them back here and put them in the Pay Lakes. We don't have an issue with that. I don't understand that train of thought. A lot of things have happened in Kentucky over the last five years. We do have a one over 35 on sports anglers now uh, statewide. We do have a a one over 35 on commercial fishermen above Cattleton Dam, but below Cattleton Dam, uh, which is my pool my pool is the very first pool below Canton dam they have issued 15 trophy permits to 15 of the best big cat catching commercial guys out there and these guys can come into my pool every single day of their life and take the four biggest fish that they can catch in a day and they're not even from my state and they don't even allow commercial fishing in their state In the state of Kentucky, we need to end that. We need to get rid of the trophy permit to the non-residentials. That's not fair to the commercial guys in Kentucky that may want that trophy permit. They can't get it. We're definitely stopping the transportation of fish and getting a uniformed regulation up and down the Ohio River. Why split it in half for commercial fishermen? You're not doing it for, you know... As a tournament director, I'm not calling Fish and Wildlife and saying, okay, well, my tournament's October the 10th. On that day, will you allow all my guys to have five overs?" You know, and tournament fishermen, you know, the and, and, and people need to realize this. In catfishing tournaments, you cannot weigh in a dead fish. You are disqualified. We are all about preserve, promoting this natural resource. No fish are ever waiting, and guys are spending hundreds to thousands of dollars putting oxygen systems in their boats to keep these fish alive. There are guys that drive around with 250 gallons of fresh water in the back of their truck, so they can pump fresh water into their fish as they wait to go into the into the weigh-in line. Most most catfishermen I know are catching release. Now, nobody. Nobody has anything against people eating catfish, but most of the guys I know are 100 catch and release. We bring the fish in, we take a picture, we post it on Facebook, and we put it back and tell you, come and get it. We just caught it here. That's the big difference between anglers and commercial fishermen. Commercial fishermen are into killing catfish. We're into saving them. We're never going to meet in the middle. Someone
3: has to draw the line. That's right. Aaron, I want to go back. I want you to stress one other thing. You're talking about these regulations. You know, you're allowed one fish over 35 inches with the trophy permit. You're allowed four. How many are they allowed then under 34?
1: All they can keep. All they can catch.
3: So that's it. I just wanted him to stress that because the point is, even these regulations you know one even even a, a sport fisherman who's allowed one fish over 35 per day that's a pretty lenient regulation you know that's every single day and um, and again that could be for multiple methods of take right but then add in the fact that they can take as many under 34s as they want and you know what are we doing as as biologists or state organizations to protect the population at that point it's hard to say that they're doing much
2: yeah big big deal here so i think what let let me just kind of summarize and you guys can fill in but we want to point to what someone both from indiana or kentucky or ohio or any of these these states that are this is happening in but beyond that how a regular person who says hey This bothers me too. This is a problem with the resource. It's not how we take care and manage natural resources and and really isn't cut from the cloth of our sporting conservation traditions for sure. So first, you know, I think what we're saying is we want to stop the interstate travel of fish. I mean, that's, that's a problem in itself. It has, it has this problem. It has uh, problems with, you know, invasive species, Asian carp, all different kinds of things. And, and we want to reduce the spread of carp by using these big catfish that eat them, you know, and, and that'll just be a byproduct of what we're talking about. But th- that's something that I think is a big deal. Uh, classifying catfish as game fish. Obviously, there's a game fish demand here for this. This is not a, a trash fish or rough fish or whatever kind of thing you might call it. This is clearly a coveted game fish that folks want and they're willing to pay in these pay lakes, they're willing to do these tournaments like Aaron has. That seems like a big one. And last, but probably most important is we got to regulate these pay lakes. We got to figure out how many they are. We got to know how many fish they're putting in there. We we need to have permits. We need to have some sort of way that they pay fees or something that gives back to the resource that they're taking so heavily from. Is that, is that right? And then let's jump after that to, to what we can get regular guys from around the country and beyond to do. Well, first of all, in the state of Kentucky in
1: 2019, we were the first state to ever pass regulations on a pay lake. Uh, we, we fought our butts off to get some kind of regulations on these pay lakes. So in 2019, uh, they passed a... You can only stock 850 pounds uh, per surface acre three times a year, which is still 2,500 pounds. And this is trophy fish only. Uh, And a trophy fish is normally going to be 18 pounds or better. Uh, So that's one thing I am proud of my state for, for finally regulating a little bit. That's still way too much. I mean, that's still what, 80, 30 pounders in a one-acre lake? You know, think about that. 80, 30-pound fish in a one-acre lake. That's too many. They'll, they'll, they cannot survive. There is no way those thirty those 80 fish can survive in a one-acre lake. There's no food source. You know, they're, they're never going to spawn again. You talked earlier about the gene pool. You know, you keep pulling these big fish out, you're pulling the gene pool out.
2: Yep. Well, that sounds I mean, like you've got a better hold on it than than what Craig's dealing with Indiana, but certainly maybe in need of some help still. Greg, what about? Yeah, uh, go ahead, Aaron.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, a lot of things Indiana Indiana, when especially when it comes to the Ohio River, cause Greg's been fighting for regulations in Indiana longer than I have in Kentucky. But we knew the root of the problem was Kentucky because Kentucky owns the Ohio River wherever it borders it, okay? So anything that Indiana would try to do was almost, you know, asinine because if Kentucky didn't follow suit, that's just more confusion. Uh, I don't know that Indiana has the the Lake population that Kentucky and Ohio does. That would be a a question for Greg. And I'm not sure that Greg knows that we did get uh, some kind of regulations put on the commercial guys as far as having to show the origin of the fish. Uh, and we did get some regulation changes to the pay lakes where there's only 50 pay lakes in the state of Kentucky. that get this trophy permit and they can stock 850 pounds per surface acre uh, three times a year.
3: Yeah. In fact, Aaron, I did know that, but as you, the point you made earlier was a lot of those fish from Kentucky waters are headed back to Ohio. And to my knowledge, Ohio has not done anything. Yeah, exactly. Where there is no
1: regulations on how many fish they can put in there. Absolutely. That, that's still a big problem in the state of Kentucky. We, we kind of fixed the problem a little bit in state, uh, but the, the major issue is what's going out of state. That's, that's a really, and, and I'm not saying that the regulations they passed in Kentucky were perfect, but it's a give and take yep. relationship. Greg, you know, that going in with these uh, committee members and these commissioners, and then, you know, happen to uh, get things through legislative and uh, review committees and legislators and You know, it's a it's
3: a full time job. It's a full time job. And you're right. I um I have made some some good connections and some good friends with uh, folks who work for Indiana agencies. And um, I'm at the point where I I don't want to slight them. I don't want to slight any state organization as much as I want to say, okay, if this is a problem that affects an entire region, it feels like we need um, sort of multi-state regulation or even national regulation. If we're saying, for example, the spread of Asian carp is a national issue, then I think we need some national regulations that affect the way we move biomass from from wa- body of water to body of water. So I think, Aaron, Kendall, to your point, um, I, I think we're uh, two individuals who would welcome um, uh involvement from a more national organization Uh, on the other hand I, i think what any listener could do is just contact their state dnr fish and wildlife agency whatever they have and um and be a squeaky wheel about pay lakes and about the take of catfish
2: i think it falls within a lot of the ways that we advocate on a lot of things when you're misusing or abusing a resource I know here in Colorado and in a lot of places I've spent some time working, you you do something like that and you got 50 or a hundred angry people in some of these commission meetings or others. And I'm sure, I know, I know Aaron talked about see having meetings with 300 people in them and, you know, raised a roar there and helped get these things done. But is there, is there links? Is there, resources is there more places and we can include these all in the show notes too but i'll give you the chance to just talk about them here other places where people can find out more about this where they can get good information and where they can perhaps you know create a a comment or something to get to their agencies
1: well like greg said, definitely exposing play lakes is definitely definitely a good site to go to uh that they really got a lot of great information on there. Uh, they got some guys that really got good connections that really show you the downfalls of pay lakes. Uh, like Greg, Greg said also, you know, the basically the way we've done things here in Kentucky is we work straight with legislators, uh, and we work straight with the Kentucky fish and wildlife department. Uh, and, and that's how we've been about things. You know, we've, we've been through several, several meetings with Fish and Wildlife since 2012. Uh, I would say at least probably 20 to get where we are today. Um, being from, you know, like you talk about out of state guys, I really don't have an answer for that. Besides the uh, Exposing Pay lake site. Uh, there is a, there is a new organization out there. Now I'm not a member of it, but the American catfishing association is out there now, uh, for folks that are interested in that. Uh, there's the Ohio Valley, uh, federation on Facebook. Uh, there's several Facebook is a really good tool to find just about anything, uh, be it catfishing or tiddlywinks, of course. Um, uh, <laughs> that would be my suggestion for sure. And then contact people. You know, this National Wildlife Federation things new for me and Greg both. I'm not really a hunter, but I know you guys are a big organization, and I know there are good people inside your organization that may have ideas that can help us that we never thought of. You know, you can find me on Facebook, Aaron Wheatley, Owensboro, Kentucky. Look me up.
3: That's exactly right. I would echo what Aaron said. And the other thing is, in my experience, there are two kinds of people well, three kinds of people out there. There are the people who know about this catfish situation and they're angry about it. And then there are those people who have no idea that this is happening. And when you tell them about it, their first response is there's no way. Someone has to stop that. I said there were three kinds of people. The third person is the person who's profiting in some way from the the sale or harvest of these catfish. So the more we can do podcasts like this, the more we can get the word out and just simply educate people about the problem. I I hope that's a helpful thing. But the other point I wanna make, and what we run up against, I think Aaron and I both in these state meetings, is that there is a sense that a state agency does not want to affect another person's livelihood. And so they could say, for example, and they have said, Well, if someone's a commercial fisherman, we don't want to take money out of their pocket. The fact is, though, these licenses aren't expensive. The net tags, the permits they get are not expensive. These individuals are not pumping a lot of money into that state economy. And what I want to tell uh, state organizations is, of course, that they're turning away more dollars by, by destroying these populations that they could get through the sale of more and you know, they increase sale and in licenses and as Aaron said, you know, things like tournaments that bring a lot of money to these local economies. Right now, that tourism money is going out of state because too many of these state organizations have protected, in my mind, smaller amounts of money and smaller incomes.
2: Well thanks for this, gents. I we're coming up on our time and you know, this is obviously a pretty complicated issue that has multiple states to deal with multiple points of view, you know, invasive species, catch limits, trophy fish, game fish, lots of different things, but I applaud the work you're doing. And I I think it's, it's in the best interest of the public and the resource to do this, to do this work and to get this changed. And like I said, we'll, we'll gather some uh, links from you both and put them in the show notes. Uh, I'll leave you with one chance. I'll start with Aaron to just leave us with the parting shot. Anything else you want to tell us before we let you go?
1: Uh, I I just want to thank you, Aaron, and and the National Wildlife Federation for giving an old Kentucky cat fisherman a voice. Uh, uh, Like I told Greg, man, we're going to keep knocking on doors. I've done a ton of, of radio and magazine and TV. And one of these days, We're going to knock on that right door, and and we're going to get things right. And I just hope it's before I'm gone. I have two grandchildren. My boys are pretty much grown now, but I have two grandchildren. My grandson loves to catfish. Every breathing moment on this planet Earth that I have left, I will use to help fight this fight and make things right for my grandson, period.
3: Yeah, that's well said, Aaron. And I I say, look, it's easy to keep this fight up when you know you're on the right side. And what I would say, Aaron Kendall, I want to thank you for this opportunity. And, you know, I would say uh, to Aaron Kendall or anyone else, hey, listen to the side of those who operate Pay Lakes. Look at these videos. Check out their sites. You do your own research and decide if they are, in fact, offering a valuable service. Or are they exploiting a natural resource in a way that they have no right to do? And everybody listening can decide for themselves. But um, for Aaron Wheatley and myself, we know we're on the right side.
2: Well, thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate your time. Keep up the good fight. Let's keep talking. Hopefully we can make some progress. I'll do my part to talk to some folks in the Federation. We have state affiliates in, in nearly every state and we'll talk to them and see, see what we can do. And for folks listening, check this out, man. It's a, it's a site and uh, check it out and see how you can help. Maybe, you know, someone that can talk with Aaron or Greg and, and make some progress here. So with that, I'll leave folks, happy trails, happy hunting this fall, happy fishing. We'll talk to you next time. We are NWF Outdoors.